The Calvary Road, Part 12. This is the last in the our series. And uh, it's the last chapter in Hessian's book, Roy Hessian. It's entitled, Protesting Our Innocence. What's it mean, protesting our innocence? It means that after all we've said about walking the Calvary Road, we say to ourselves, well, I'm, I'm innocent. No, nobody is innocent, as we're going to see. So let's just uh, uh, turn in our Bibles or just read off of the... Um, Off of the PowerPoint presentation, Luke chapter 9, verses, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Notice that. I never noticed that before. It says he prayed with, thus with himself. He's not praying to God. He's praying with himself. You know, I just noticed that. I never even noticed that before. Praise the Lord. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. Notice all that long, flowery prayer that he has. But look at the tax collector's prayer. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat on his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. You know, how many words are in that prayer? I count seven, only seven Seven words in that prayer. You know, here the Pharisee gives that long prayer, and he just says seven words. God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, that is the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Lord, we just come before you today, Lord, and we just confess our unworthiness uh, before you, Lord. And uh, our prayer is like the uh, prayer of the uh, tax collector, to be merciful to us as sinners, Lord. Lord, we do not seek to exalt ourselves, Lord, but to humble ourselves before you, because this is what the living the crucified uh, life is all about, which is what uh, Roy Hessian has been talking about in this, uh, uh, in this book. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just help us to take all these words to heart, Lord, and uh, uh, put them into practice in our own lives. Help us, Lord, not to exalt ourselves, Lord, but to humble Humble ourselves before you, Almighty God, for we are unworthy to stand in your presence. But it's through the Lord Jesus Christ that we can become worthy, Lord, when we receive him into our lives and live that crucified living. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we've been, again, we've been in this uh, series now for 12 weeks uh, entitled The Calvary Road. It's based upon the book, The Calvary Road, which was written by a man by the name of Roy Hessian. Uh, 
And the theme verse for this is Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. You know, remember, uh, this is really part of our series on winning the spiritual battle and the weapons of God. And one of the weapons of God is the blood of the Lamb. It says that uh, the saints that were in heaven, that had been martyred during the time of the Great Tribulation, it says that they overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives unto death. Okay, now, chapter 1 was on brokenness. This sets the tone for the entire uh, book. And it's the idea that we need to be broken. And this uh, uh, involves crucified living. Again, what does Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 say? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Also, Luke chapter 9, verses 20, verse 23. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross. How often? daily and follow me for whosoever would save his life will lose it but whosoever will lose his life for my sake will find it chapter 2 with cups running over we saw that the cup speaks to us of the human heart and it's to be filled just you know to the top right is that right no it's to be filled to brimming over you fill it with the Holy Spirit. And your, the cup of your heart is be filled to brimming over with the Holy Spirit. So he can go out, spill out, and touch other people around you. Number uh, Chapter 3 was the way of fellowship. We saw at the fall of man fellowship, that is communion, was broken not only with God, but also with fellow man. You know, that's a big reason why we have the pot bless. Not just to feed our faces, but also to fellowship. To get to know each other. You know, I try to uh, uh, sit with the, the Native Americans, you know, when we have the pot bless. So I can talk to you. I can get to know you better. Okay? So... God's cure for uh, the fellowship being broken is to walk in the light. John wrote in 1 John 1, 7, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son keeps on cleansing us from every sin. Chapter 4 was the highway of holiness. Uh, Hessian's terminology came from Isaiah chapter 35, verses uh, 8 and 9. The highway to holiness is really the highway to Calvary, because Calvary acts as a goal. That when we march towards Calvary, we become more and more holy. And the unclean cannot walk on it, Isaiah says. The unclean refers to those that have not been born again. And it says also that there no lion or ravenous beast may be on there. 
The lion refers to the devil and his demonic hordes. We don't have to fear the devil when we're on the highway to holiness. Ravenous beast speaks of the people that are, teach falsely. Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you as sheep in wolves' clothing. The ravenous beast. They're out to devour you because they want you to be drawn to them and be a disciple of them. But if you're walking the path of holiness, you don't need to worry about them deceiving you. Okay? So hopefully all of us that are born again are walking that highway to holiness. Chapter 5 was the dove and the lamb. The dove speaks of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is sensitive to disharmony. And so a lot of churches suffer from this. They have disharmony. And you know what happens when they have disharmony? The Holy Spirit leaves. Because the Holy Spirit is sensitive to that. Just as, you know, uh, doves as a bird, they're very sensitive to loud noises. I told you the story about the missionary couple that uh, went to uh, Israel. And as soon as they moved into their apartment, you know, there was a, uh, a pair of doves that uh, uh, built their nest right outside there. And uh, they... Uh, learned that if they raised their voices to each other, maybe got into a disagreement, what happened? The doves flew away. And they always thought that those doves were a, a sign of God's blessing upon their ministry there. So they learned to keep their, tone their voices down, lest they startle the uh, dove, doves and the, you know, thus, you know, uh, that symbol of God's blessing upon their ministry would be uh, uh, gone. And of course, the Lamb refers to the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the Lamb of God was submissive. The Garden of Gethsemane, he said to his father, you know, he didn't, you know, his flesh, uh, his human side shrank back from it. But he said, Father, you know, not my will, but yours be done. Okay, so the Lamb of God symbols the kind of life we're to live, a life of submissive to the, the Father, to, to God. Chapter 6 was revival in the home. We saw that uh, in order to have a harmonious home life, we need to be open with those in our household and not hide what is really what we really are. And we also need to display agape love. Unconditional love. Chapter 7, the moat and the bean. That terminology comes from Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse 3. Talks about, you know, we see the speck, the, the, the moat, the tiny speck that's in our brother's eye. That is some kind of tiny fault that he or she has. And we miss the bean, the thing that's blinding us to our own uh, shortcomings. So he said, first take out the beam of, from your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So we're not to be judges. Jesus said, judge not that ye be not judged. But we are to be fruit inspectors. 
somebody claims to be a Christian, do they have the fruit to prove that they are? And we need to inspect the fruit of our own lives too. Amen? Amen. Okay. Chapter 8, are you willing to be a servant? Just like Jesus, we should be willing to be servants. That is doulos. Doulos is a servant by choice. We don't serve God because we have to. We serve God because we want to. Because we love Him. And we're not only to serve God, but we are to serve our fellow man as well. Chapter 9. The power of the blood and the lamb. I spent a couple of uh, weeks on this. And uh, uh, we saw uh, how uh, the blood of the lamb won our redemption at the cross. And it also has the power to bring about revival in our own personal lives and in our nation. So we need to plead the blood of the lamb upon our nation right now because it desperately needs it. We need a revival. Amen? Hallelujah. Okay, today I'm going to complete the uh, series. I'm going to cover the final chapter in Hessian's book, and he titles it, Protesting Our Innocence. This is what the Pharisee did. He protested his innocence before Almighty God. And he listed all these things he was not guilty of and the things that he uh, did, the positive things in his life. And he thought that that made him righteous in the sight of God. Now, the theme passage of this chapter is the parable of the sower, which I just, I'm sorry, parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, which I just read to you. It should be a familiar passage to you. I've quoted it a few times over the last few years since I've be, become pastor here. Uh, and I've used it in reference with the righteousness of the believer. We are not righteous because of our good works. We are righteous because Jesus Christ is righteous and we appropriate his righteousness for ourselves. That's what we are to do. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, he said, I don't have a righteousness of my own, but of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is mine by faith. It's based on grace through faith and not on works. Now, the key thing to observe in the parable is the attitude of the heart, as illustrated by those two men, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And I find it interesting that uh, the, the focus of the Pharisee was on who? It was on himself, right? It wasn't on God. It was on himself and all of the things that he did and that he abstained from, you know, and the things which he did, which he thought made him righteous. But who, on who was the focus of the tax collectors, uh, tax collector? He said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He was looking to God and not himself for his righteousness. And Jesus <clears throat> observed that. 
It, it says it even to the prophets of the uh, parable. And also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. You know, uh, Hessian brings this interesting story of this Sunday school teacher. She's teaching her class about the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And after she goes through and tells them the story, you know what she says to them? He says, thank God we're not like the Pharisee. <laughs> now she just contradicted herself because she, she adopted the attitude of the Pharisee right there. Didn't she? Thank God we're not like the Pharisee. You know, so they look down on, you know, you know, trusting them themselves and look down on others. That's what she was doing. She was looking down on the Pharisee. We're going to see why that's the wrong attitude. So my first observation from the passage is never compare yourself to others. Especially with those that you deem as less spiritual than yourself. Don't ever think that you're better than anybody else. Because you're not. Nobody in this room is better than anybody else. Amen? Do you agree with that? Nobody is better than anybody else. And we're going to see why that is true. Now, should you forget this, I urge you, remember the condition of your heart. And I'm going to quote uh, some following scriptures that describe the condition of fallen man which dwells in each of us. Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, you know, the, the uh, context of this passage was that uh, Jesus had uh, been uh, telling his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees had this rule that you had to go through all this ritual washing of your hands before you ate any food. And Jesus said this is a nonsense. He says it's not the things that go into a man through his food that defile him. It's what comes out of him. And that's what he says right here. What comes out of man, that a, a man that defiles him, <clears throat> for from within, the, the, what comes out of man, what defiles him, for, uh, from within, out of the heart, proceed evil thoughts. Now I've underlined that up on the uh, screen over there. Evil thoughts, because all of the rest of these things which we would call the works of the flesh. You know, there's several works of the flesh that are noted throughout uh, the New Testament. One of the more noted ones is in uh, Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. But this is another list here. And it starts out with what? It starts out with those evil thoughts. All the rest of these manifestations of the flesh, the outward signs come from within, from the evil thoughts, the evil thoughts of the heart. And then he lists them, adulteries, fornications, murders, theft, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, 
foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Jeremiah puts it this way. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The Hebrew there reads incurably sick. Who can know it or who can understand it? So even though we are redeemed with the blood of Jesus Christ, who's redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ out there? Hold your hands up high. If you're redeemed, everybody should be holding up your hands. If not, I'll be seeing you at the altar call. Amen? Hallelujah. Okay, we're redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, but we still have that fallen nature within us. So I want to briefly take a close look at Jeremiah 17, verse 9. Jeremiah first writes the first part of that uh, verse, The heart is deceitful above all else. You recall what the writer of Hebrews wrote. In fact, I shared with you this last week when I was talking about the parable of the sower and the seed that falls on the wayside, the path. It's, the soil's been all packed down. I said that represents the human heart that's been hardened. And the, the seed of the word cannot generate in it. And I quoted for you Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. The writer of Hebrews writes, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort or encourage one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin by its very nature will deceive you and blind you. And you won't be able to see this. Also, 1 John chapter 1, verse 10. John writes, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and His truth is not in us. You know the problem with that Pharisee? Did he confess any sins? He deceived himself. He thought he had no sin. Be very careful because all of us have that sin nature and we're going to stumble and fall at times. Amen? Jeremiah also says, and desperately wicked, as I mentioned, the Hebrew there reads incurably sick. The sin nature within us is that way. It's incurably sick. We were born that way. And everybody that's got kids knows that. Doesn't take long for that sinful nature, that Adamic nature, that wanting to have its own way to manifest itself. We were born with it and we will die with it. Nobody will ever be cured of that sin nature, not in this life. So we can't cure that old self, but you know what? 
we can bring it under control. Jeremiah concludes with this phrase, who can know it or who can understand it? You know, even the Apostle Paul struggled with his sin nature. You read about that in the second half of Romans chapter 7. And if you read that passage, those uh, 13 verses there, verse 13 through 25, you'll see yourself in there. And you scratch your head and you thought, well, I had thought that the Apostle Paul had it all together. No, he struggled with that old man just as much as we do. Amen? I struggle with it. I'm sure you struggle with it. I hope you're struggling with it anyway and not submitting to it. But the Apostle uh, Paul uh, begins that passage there in verse 15. He says, for what I am doing, that is when I follow after this carnal nature, I do not understand. Jeremiah says, who can understand it? The Apostle Paul didn't understand it. For what I will to do, I do not practice. I'm not doing the right things that I want to do, but what I hate, that's what I'm doing. And he goes back and forth about this. And you see the, the word I, I think it's, he, he uses the first person pronoun, either I or me, something like 25 times in just a few verses. The problem is his focus is on himself. And as long as your focus is on yourself, you will not overcome that carnal nature within you. Now, Hessian has some interesting thoughts on this matter here. Quoting from his book, The, Cal uh, the Calvary Road, page 69, he writes, Here, then, is God's picture of the human heart, the falling, fallen self, the old man. And at this point, he footnotes Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22. And I'm going to quote uh, the, uh, uh, the context of it, uh, verses 22 through 24. The Apostle Paul said, urges his uh, readers and the people that listen to this epistle being read in their church. He says, that you put off concerning the former manner of life, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, after which God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Got that, everybody? Put off the old man and put on the new man. The new man is the new nature you receive when you're born again. Amen? You're born again, a new man is born within you. To put aside the desires of the flesh and serve the living God. The old man, as the scripture calls it, whether it be in the unconverted or in the, key, the, heart, uh, the keenest Christian. You see somebody that doesn't know the Lord... He's got the old nature, right? He's got the old man. But even in the keenest Christian, that old man is still there. Again, we're incurably sick. We can't get rid of that old man. 
we can only bring him under control. It is hard to believe that these things can proceed from the hearts of ministers, evangelists, and Christian workers, but it is true. I cite uh, the case of Jimmy Swaggart. You know, Jimmy Swaggart was, you know, a person I thought that had it all together. Back in the late, late 1980s, you know, he, he, he had this uh, television ministry that was going into 120 different churches. And then all of a sudden he fell. Because Jimmy Swaggart had a fascination from the time he was very young with pornography. And that demon reared its ugly head and he fell. And in the process, too, he brought a, a black eye to the entire body of Christ. You know, when David uh, sinned with uh, his sin with Bathsheba and then later, uh, you know, having her husband killed on the front lines of the war. You know, that was his greatest sin. I'm gonna, we're going to talk about that in a, just a minute. But uh, there was an interesting thing. He was confronted by Nathan the prophet. And there's one thing that Nathan told him. He said, because of your sin, you have caused the enemies of God to blaspheme. And that's exactly what happened with Jimmy Swaggart. He fell and the undisbelieving world he made a laughingstock out of uh, the, the church and what we believe. They stood back at him. They said, oh, this man, you know, he was preaching to others and everything. And here he's no better than any of us. Yeah, he's no better than any of us. Swaggart was no better than any of us because he still had that fallen nature, that carnal nature, the old man. And he let the old man get the best of him. And so they, they were just, uh, it was just a mockery all over the uh, airwaves and everything. So somebody that assumes a position of leadership has got to doubly bear down and try to bring that old nature into subjection. And not fall in that. Because I, I once heard it said, the, to the extent that you influence people by the position that God puts you in life, to that same extension you can bring the same amount of harm to the body of Christ if you fall. So, just because a person is a Christian minister, an evangelist, a Christian worker, as Hessian points out, you know, it can happen. The simple truth is that the only beautiful thing about the Christian is Jesus Christ. I'm going to say that again. Listen carefully. The simple truth is that the only beautiful thing about you as a Christian is the Lord Jesus Christ living in you. Can you say amen to that? God wants us to recognize that fact as true in our experience so that in true brokenness and despair we shall allow Jesus Christ to be our righteousness and holiness in all. 
And that that shall be our victory. The only way you can have victory is to give Jesus Christ first place in your life. Amen? Now the problem with the Pharisee's attitude is he focused in on his outward works instead of the inward condition of his heart. You know, I heard uh, uh, Greg Laurie say something. Uh, uh, you know, I recorded a bunch of uh, uh, Greg Laurie's messages, you know, on my uh, DVR, and I was playing uh, through a few of them this past week. And he said one thing that I thought was really profound. He said, you can have the outward without the inward. What's he mean? The outward. You can give all the outward you know, appearances, all the outward works, but you still don't have the inward, the inward transformation in your heart. But, he went on to say, you cannot have the inward without the outward. You can't have the inward reality, the inward faith, the inward reality of Jesus Christ living in your life and not have the outward works to display to this world that you do in fact know Jesus Christ. So a little thing there. You can have the outward without the inward. You know, many people live very moral lives. Some people claim to be Christians and they give all the appearances, but they still have an inward cancer in their heart. You can have the outward without the inward, but you can't have the inward without the outward. Amen? Everybody understand what I mean? Very profound thought. That's what the Pharisee had. He had the outward works, but he didn't have the inward experience in his heart. God was not truly in his heart. He was doing everything for show and display and his own personal pride. And while he may have known Jeremiah 17 verse 9, he ignored it. Not acknowledging that sin was in his heart as it is in everybody else incurably sick. And this is what the belief in the doctrine of salvation by works leads to. Outward actions versus inward <clears throat> reality. The Christian is to produce the works, but what's his motivation or her motivation? It should be because they love God and they love their fellow man. You produce the works because you love God and you love your fellow man. Paul wrote this thing in, uh, here. He says, you have become estranged from Christ. He was writing to the Galatian believers. You know, He had led them to Christ and talked about this inward reality that they were to have. But then the Judaizers came and they said, well, if you're really saved, you've got to... Uh, uh, be circumcised and uh, do the, uh, the Jewish ceremonial law, you know, observe the law of the Jews. And Paul wrote most vehemently against that mentality in the book of Galatians. And he writes to the Galatians, you become estranged from Christ. You become separated from him. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. 
Now, I've talked about that group before, and when I talk, uh, uh, the ch- called the Church of Christ, and when I do that, I'm not, <clears throat> I'm, I'm simply pointing out their error, okay? I'm not saying I'm better than they. I'm simply saying they are in error. And there was one fellow that, uh, uh, he was Church of Christ, you know, and, and, and the Church of Christ is hung up on three doctrines. They're hung up on their church. They say that if you don't belong to their church, you're not really saved. You, you've got to belong to the Church of Christ. Number two, their baptism. You, you not only uh, have to be baptized, but you have to believe that that baptism saves you. So what they're doing is they're saying you put your faith in Jesus Christ and your baptism. You put your faith in Jesus and your church. They also teach that you have to, you work your way into salvation. Jesus and their works. Jesus and, Jesus and, Jesus and. I tell you, it's Jesus only. Amen? Amen. Your salvation is Jesus Christ and Him alone. The only addition to that is in His finished work for you there on the cross. And the people there at the church, uh, there was one guy from the Church of Christ told me, you're fallen from grace. But he completely ignores the context. He says, you have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. He's saying, Cliff, you've fallen from grace because you don't believe in uh, the church and you don't believe in baptism and you, you don't believe in your works. And that the t- the... The teaching of that scripture is the complete opposite of what he was trying to tell me. So they, they've got this wrong attitude. They say this, that this, you know, those of you that are uh, works of the law, they're saying, oh, that's the Old Testament. But the problem is, you know what they do? Is they substitute New Testament law for Old Testament law. What is harder to keep? New Testament law or Old Testament law? New Testament law is a thousand times harder to keep than Old Testament law. Because Old Testament law dealt with the outward actions. New Testament law is dealing with what? The inward thoughts and motivations of the heart. largely with the outward actions of a person, whereas the New Testament law deals with the inward thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Jesus said, you have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, I don't commit adultery. But he says, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, it's harder to keep, not just not uh, committing the physical act of adultery or keeping from abstaining from the lust that you might feel for, you know, those of us that are men towards a woman. And it could be a woman for a man, too. Amen? What's harder to keep? It's harder to keep what Jesus just told us right there, isn't it? It's not just the outward action. It's what you think and feel and the attitude of your heart. The attitude of hate and resentment towards others is a murderer. Did you realize that? 
The Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And this is what I told you before. I said, you take that word hate, brothers and sisters, and you erase that from your vocabulary as it pertains to your fellow man. Now, there are things that we are to hate. We're to hate sin. We're to hate the devil. We're to hate the demonic hordes that uh, are his cohorts. But in terms of our fellow human beings, take hate and erase that from your vocabulary. You should never say, I hate him or I hate her. Other things. Envy. You envy something, it's the same as stealing. Covetousness. The Apostle Paul wrote that covetousness is idolatry. Now, the thing about New Testament law is because it is so hard to keep, it should drive us to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it should be doing. We say, we can't, I can't keep this New Testament law, Lord. So it should be driving you to Jesus Christ. And we should be justifying God. As long as you try to justify yourself before God on the basis of your works, as the Pharisee did, you will not justify God himself. Hessian writes, That brings us to the tax collector. With all that God says about the human heart in our minds, we can see that his confession of sin was simply, of the tax collector's confession of sin, was simply justifying, a justifying of God, an admission that what God says about him was true. Perhaps like the Pharisee, he used not to believe that what God said about man was really true of him, but the Holy Spirit had shown him things in his life which proved that God is right and he is broken. And, you know, I, Hessian didn't put this, but there's a little story there in Luke chapter 7, verses uh, uh, 35, uh, I'm sorry, 36 through 50. Little story. Jesus went to the home of a Pharisee. You have a kind of a, uh, you know, replay of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus is in the home of this Pharisee, and uh, he's sitting there reclining. And all of a sudden, this woman burst into the room, uninvited. And she falls at Jesus' feet and weeps and cries and uh, uh, opens up this uh, jar of perfume, pours it over his feet. And uh, the Pharisee is just sitting there thinking to himself, Now, if this man, this Jesus, was really a prophet of God, he would know what manner of woman this is, that she is a sinner. And Jesus knows what the, he's thinking. So he says, Simon, you know, I've got a few things to ask you. And then he tells the story of this uh, two men that, opened, uh, that uh, uh, owed another man you know, money. He said one of them owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And because neither of them had the money to pay him, the creditor simply forgave both of them. He says, now which one will love the creditor more? And the Pharisee says, well, you know, scratches his head. I suppose maybe the one who owed him the 500 denarii, the, you know, uh, stiffer uh, uh, 
uh, amount, the, the greater amount. And Jesus said, you've uh, judged correctly. And the indication was that this woman had many, many sins, many more sins than the Pharisee had. And that's why she loved Jesus more, because she, he, she was forgiven by him. And she said, uh, uh, go in peace, your, your faith has saved you, your sins are forgiven. Okay? So this is the thing that may be the tax collector. And, and believe me, tax collectors in the, those days, do you know what they, they would do? They would not only collect taxes for the Romans, which made them uh, persona non grata in their Jewish society, but they would also not, uh, they weren't paid by the Romans to do it. So when they collected taxes, they would not only uh, collect the taxes that uh, the Romans said the people owned, owed, but they would collect even more. And they got rich out of doing that. So not only are they collecting these taxes for the Romans, but they're also getting rich off the common people. That's why tax collectors were so despised and regarded as, as such sinners back in those days. Hessian uh, uh, continues on, not only does he, that is the tax collector, justify God in all he said, but he doubtless justifies God in all the chastening judgments that God has brought upon him. Now there's examples of men that justified God. Do you justify God in your life? What do you mean by justify God? I mean you say that God, you are right in your judgments upon me. You are 100% just. You are righteous. You are holy. Nehemiah uh, wrote in his, uh, his book, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 33. He says, However, you are just in all that has befallen us. For you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. This was the nation of Israel looking back to the judgment that befell them when the Babylonians invaded their land and carried them off and burned their temple and destroyed their nation. Why? Why did God allow that? Because of their sin. And they said, you were just, God, in allowing this judgment to befall our nation. So the children of Israel reflected back on their past and all the sins that they had committed and openly confessed that God was justified in bringing judgment upon them as he did with the Babylonians. And David did the same. You know, after he committed his grievous sin with Bathsheba and killing her uh, husband, the Uriah the Hittite, Nathan confronted him. He confessed his sin, he repented of it, and he wrote down in the 51st Psalm, you should be familiar with it if you've never uh, read it, the 51st Psalm, David's prayer of repentance. And he wrote there in verse 4, he says, Against you and you only have I son and, uh, sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless uh, when you uh, judge. Okay? So David recognized his sin, and he was responsible for it, and he said, God, you are just in bringing upon me your, your judgment.
So the tax collector, perhaps because of recognizing his sin, as I mentioned, uh, tax collectors regularly uh, help themselves to extra money from their collections, ripping off the common people, had finally come to the same conclusion as Paul in Romans chapter 7, verse 18. For I know that in me, that is my flesh, my carnal nature, my old man, there dwells no good thing, for to will is present with me, but how to perform it, what is good, I do not find. Hessian goes on ahead and says, Let us therefore then not fear to make that to make such a confession before God, uh, after God convicts us, as we, ha- you know, we, we think that if we confess our sin, we're going to feel guilty because we let Jesus down. Rather, the reverse is true, for out of it God gets the glory, for we declare Him that He is righteous. And this brings us to a new experience in Christ, for it brings us to the place where we give up trying to make our incorrigible self, that's the same thing as the old man, the sin nature, incorrigible selves holy, whereas we take Jesus to be our holiness and his life to be our life. Jesus is our holiness, amen? Jesus is our righteousness, amen? Okay. We can't make the old man holy. Only Jesus can do that. Okay, I'm going to wrap up here. Finally, the tax collector simply says, Be merciful to me. The word there for merciful means propitious. Now, what's propitious? The noun form is propitiation. You say, well, what's, what's propitiation, Pastor Cliff? You know, that's a $5 word. I, I have no idea what that means. Propitiation is to be the atoning sacrifice. So, the tax collector was saying, be propitious to me, you know, let your Atoning sacrifice, take care of me, a sinner. You know, that uh, sacrifice, uh, you know, uh, maybe reading between the lines of this parable, maybe it was being offered at that very moment. But the thing is, this was before the permanent sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was to be consummated. So maybe it was a lamb or something like that. He was looking for that atoning sacrifice for his sin. He recognized the fact that he could not save himself, but had to rely on a substitute offering for his sin. And this was ultimately achieved permanently in the offering of Jesus Christ himself on the cross for all the sins of the world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, He himself is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Jesus died on the cross not for the Jewish nation. He didn't just die for the Americans. He died for the Thai people over in Thailand, for the people of India and China, for the Native Americans. He died for everyone. That's why 
Christianity should be for everyone because all of us need that atoning sacrifice. Hessian closes out, As I in true brokenness confess my sin and put my faith in His blood, they are cleansed and gone. My sin is cleansed and gone. Peace with God then comes into my heart. Fellowship with God is restored and I walk with Him in white. Okay, this quickly. Final thoughts. Hessian's entire book testifies that we cannot justify ourselves before God, but we must approach Him broken and fully submitted to Him and His will. So He has come full circle. You remember the first chapter in Hessian's book? What was the first chapter? It was on brokenness, right? And I told you brokenness is to be broken before Him, recognize your sin, be brokenhearted, and live a crucified life. So he's back all the way to where he started. He's come full circle. Number two, never compare yourself to others as the Pharisee did. Instead, recognize that your heart is deceitful above all else and incurably sick. You are no better than anybody else. So don't look down on anybody else. <clears throat> Number three, never justify yourself before Almighty God. Instead, justify Him by admitting that His judgments are righteous and His decrees about everything are pure and noble. He is holy. We're not holy. He is holy. We can strive for holiness, and that's what we need to do, but He alone is truly holy. The last paragraph in Hessian's book is, There then is our choice. To protest our innocence, as the Pharisee did, and go down to our houses unblessed, dry of soul, and out of touch with God or to justify God and enter into peace, fellowship, and victory through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Okay, we're going to have, uh, before we go to prayer, we're going to have a, uh, a closing song. Go ahead and cue that up if you would, uh, uh, Susie. title of this song is Broken Vessels. And this song compares the human life to that of a vessel, maybe made of clay. You know what a vessel is? Something that you put things in. You know, they used to have, you know, put things, wine and water and things like that into a vessel, a bottle. And this vessel has been broken and then mended together. Now this is an allusion to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 where the beloved apostle writes, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. What is this treasure? This treasure is the Holy Spirit. This treasure is the new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's put into what? Earthen vessels. That's a refer to the, uh, that uh, carnal human heart. And it's put in there. The new life is put in there. Okay?
we need to be broken before you, Lord, because we are broken. Our fallen human nature is there with us. It's incurably sick. And Lord, it's only when we acknowledge that and allow ourselves to be broken before you that we can be raised up into that new life to serve you. And Lord, help us to <clears throat> sing with the uh, uh, singer here, Lord, that, Lord, uh, uh, take uh, this heart, Lord. I'll be your vessel. And that's what you want to do with each of us, Lord. You want us to be vessels for you, Lord, that we can display your love in our lives. And help us to remember this message, Lord, and this series, Lord, on uh, the Calvary Road and apply it in our own lives. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Hallelujah. Uh, let's